The scripture reading for today is taken from the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll be reading together from Matthew chapter 6, the verses 25 to 34. Matthew chapter 6, the verses 25 to 34. And you'll be able to find that if you have a pew Bible on page 1117. This comes right in the midst of Christ's Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5, 6, and 7. And our Lord Jesus Christ has just taught his disciples how to pray, giving them the Lord's Prayer and teaching them where their hearts should lie. Verse 25, he continues, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So far, the word of God. The text for today, the verse that we'll be taking as our text, is the second half of Matthew 6, verse 30. O you of little faith, we'll be reflecting on those words. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord willing, this month we will be launching into a new home visit season. Soon those of you who are members here will have elders dropping by your door. These are brothers who come in love, checking in to see if all is well and how to see how you, your walk with God is and to see if you need any encouragement along the way, any help along the way. Every year we have a new home visit theme and this year is no different. As we, Lord willing, will be having the opportunity to go door to door, the main theme for this year will be this, walking by faith, trusting in God and His promises for us. Walking by faith, trusting in God and His promises for us. And this is a beautiful theme. 
I'm very excited to see how this grows in our church life over the coming year as it moves from one home to another over the next number of months. Because it is good to be reminded to walk by faith, to depend on the Lord every step of the way. Especially in uncertain times like we are facing these days, it is good to be able to reflect on the promises of God and to be encouraged to lean on them. But before we dive into this over the next month, there is one glaring thing that stands out. A great and obvious struggle that so many people deal with. And that's this. Weakness of faith. Perhaps you have had it that you had times in which your faith felt so small. When God felt so far away When you're lifting up your voice in prayer, you weren't even sure if he was hearing you. Or maybe you were even too tired by that point in time to lift up your voice in prayer to God, overwhelmed by what was going on in life. Does God hear me? Can I trust or is my faith too weak? If my faith is too weak, does that mean there's no hope for me? Is it pointless? It's good and important to discuss this. If we struggle with weakness of faith, whether it's been for a season or if it's been for a whole lifetime up to this point, whether it's as a boy or a girl or as an elder or deacon or as one of the oldest members in the congregation, young or old, If we struggle or we have struggled with weakness of faith, this is a question that we do need to look at. When we hear that theme, walking by faith, trusting in God and His promises for us, we think of men and women of power, people of strength and courage, and it's easy to rule ourselves out when we feel this way. To put it as something that's beyond our reach, rather than seeing that it's precisely for the weak that Jesus came. If that's the case, we have to come to terms with and understand times of little faith before we can move on. And so today we'll do this as we look at the words of Jesus, O you of little faith. We'll see, first of all, how Christ is speaking to his disciples. Second, how he is teaching his disciples, and third, making promises to his disciples. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. O you of little faith. Christ's comment comes in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount. And if anything worked faith, you would think that it would be that sermon, wouldn't you? This sermon, the most famous sermon in history, which has changed the lives of billions over the last 2,000 years, it's considered by many to be the most important of Christ's words on earth. And by many, even secular people, it's considered to be one of the most influential set of spoken words in history. Directed at his disciples, he is teaching them what kingdom living looks like. And 
in the middle of it all, as he's speaking with them and sharing these amazing words, he says to them, oh, you of little faith. This is not the first, or this is the first, but not the last time that he says this. He repeats this phrase again when he calms the raging sea for his disciples on the boat in chapter 8. In chapter 14, he says this to Peter, who just finished walking on water but sank because he was suddenly overwhelmed again by doubt. And again in chapter 16, after he miraculously fed the 5,000, and later again the 4,000 with only a few loaves and fish, he says this to his disciples and friends who fear because they forgot to pack bread for their journey. Again and again, the faith of his disciples wavers. And you hear these words come back, Oh, you of little faith. It can feel like a hard thing to hear, can't it? Especially if it comes in the midst of what is supposed to be a spiritually encouraging thing, which moves billions through millennia. This can also be a hard thing to hear when we see it directed at the disciples, especially for those who feel they can sympathize a lot with the disciples during this time. Sure, there are times when we can feel frustrated with the disciples because we know how it ends. We read from a point of view that knows who Jesus Christ is and how all of this will end. They don't know it. They're in the middle of it. But if we look at it from our own lives, from our point of view, we begin to understand. We even begin to, we even know how this world and this life will end. We know that Jesus will be victorious. And yet there are times when we find ourselves still struggling with small faith in areas of life, big or small. And then suddenly, from that point of view, they're not all that different. This is something that is not strange to God's people in history. And it's good to be reminded of that. In our confessions, the canons of Dort, chapter 5, article 11, we read this. Scripture, meanwhile, testifies that believers in this life have to struggle with various doubts of the flesh and, placed under severe temptation, don't always feel this full assurance of faith and certainty of perseverance. They put that in there because also, so many centuries later, the church in their day struggled with it. Seeing it coming forward among the disciples and seeing it coming forward and needing to be addressed again around the time of the Reformation, it shows us that it's common to man to struggle and to doubt. So why then do we find these words in Scripture? O oh, you of little faith. These words are not meant to be a discouragement to us. Jesus is teaching us something. He's teaching us that we don't have 
untouchable heroes in Scripture when we look at these disciples and when we look at other figures. Our examples are not men and women who never struggled, who never doubted, but who, by sheer force of will, were victorious. Jesus teaches us that we have real men and women with the same struggles as we have that we can look at in Scripture. Real men and women that he looks at in love. With those words, O you of little faith, Christ is speaking not to superheroes on sacred texts. He is speaking to his disciples. Everyday people with their everyday weaknesses. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Those who feel like their faith is very small should not feel like they are non-disciples because of it. Jesus Christ came precisely for the weak. It's exactly for them that he came, the ones he calls to follow him. His disciples, as weak as they were, he came for them. He came for you and for me. And what does he say? What does he say to you and to me today? This brings us to the second thing we'll consider today. He's teaching his disciples. Jesus Christ, even though they are weak and their faith is small, is teaching his disciples. He doesn't reject them. He doesn't set them aside because of their struggles, but he's teaching his disciples. And I want you to notice how he does it. Yes, he includes the rebuke, O you of little faith. But this is not a harsh rebuke, not a cold rebuke. It's like one to give in to a panicked child in the lake who is swimming for the first time, and for a moment he can't feel his father's hands, and he panics, don't let me drown. It's a warm and gentle response, O little one, O my child as if I would ever leave you. You can see that it's true that he looks at them in this way by the way that he sandwiches it. First, he gives them a reminder to strengthen them. And then he follows it up with direction and comfort. Verses 30 to 31, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry. The reminder is a reminder of who exactly it is that is in control. It comes on the heels of this. Look at the birds of the air. Consider the lilies of the field. Our Heavenly Father provides for those. Every creature in all creation that is provided for is provided for by God. Even the little sparrow finds its food at the hands of our dear Lord. Every meadow that's clothed in wildflowers is clothed in garments provided for it by our Father. Remember that, loved one, little one. Did you really think he would forget you? If he remembers those, 
will he not much more remember to provide for you? O little one, O you of little faith, he continues, therefore do not worry. This gentleness, understanding, and compassion is then followed with direction. Because Christ does come precisely for the weak. But he doesn't just leave them there as he comes to them. He also gives them direction. The direction that he gives them is this. Examine your priorities. Examine the things that you lean on. Do you struggle in your faith? Look at the things that you hold as important, that you rely on from day to day. What do you prioritize above all else in this life? Lean on your Father. There are people in this world that see security as their highest goal. As long as I'm comfortable, I can eat, I can drink, I can have shelter over my head, I'm okay. And when something comes along to threaten my comfort, then suddenly I have this deep crisis of faith. You're like that child who suddenly finds themselves in deeper water and you can't touch bottom anymore and you're frantically splashing around looking for your father. But when you reflect on what's actually being said here, maybe you ask yourself a question. Isn't it appropriate to think about those things? To talk about those things? To be concerned about all those things? Isn't it good to provide for ourselves and our families? That's true. But the key to understanding what Jesus is saying comes in the next line. For after all these things the Gentiles seek. Elsewhere this is translated as the Gentiles run after all these things. Something will always be first priority in life. Something will always be the thing that you lean on. Do different things in life serve your priority? Or are those different things your priority? Food, clothing, shelter, and more. Are those things things that help you in your pursuit of the higher goal? Or have these things become your highest goal? Has that become all there is to life for you? When our faith is weak, we can begin to slip again. Little things, the insecurity, the uncertainty of the future can give us a crisis of faith. Will I have food? Will I be provided for? If I don't date this person, if I don't take that job, if I don't have a child, if I do have a child, my future will fall apart. If I don't make friends in school, if my friend decides not to like me, my whole life will come down. But we've forgotten who we're leaning on. We've forgotten who God is. We've forgotten that he's the God who takes care of the birds of the air, of the lilies of the field. We've forgotten his faithfulness throughout history to his people. We've forgotten that he is right there. And we doubt that the same faithfulness that he showed through history will apply to us. 
When our faith is weak, Jesus Christ teaches us this. Look to God. Lean on God. When we trust in God for the rest, He will guide us as we pursue that higher goal. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So what then? If we do remember God in the midst of that, where do we go from there? When your faith is weak, you're looking for guidance. Where to go? What to do? It was good news. In those words, Christ also gives us further direction. Christ talked about the Gentiles running after these things. But they run after things because they're uncertain. They are trying to lean on them. They are trying to find certainty and stability in those things. And he's teaching us we have certainty. So where do we go? Well, the same word for running after or seeking is used again here. But here it's used to point us down a new path and to a new way. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Running after is the idea that's used. You can spend your whole life running from one thing to another and exhausting yourself, but God gives us something else to pursue. Those other things end up in you wearing yourself out. You sacrifice your time, your life, and more. And for what? It's a race that you run with constantly moving goalposts. Maybe your only friend has wrong standards for you, wanting things that you can't give. Or the person you date wants more compromises. Or the next job comes with increased cost of living. Or you are told you need more stuff to be comfortable in retirement. And the goalposts keep moving. Do you ever feel that way? Like the thing that you're pursuing is never enough and the end of the race is never quite in sight. The goalposts keep moving. But Christ points us to the kingdom. Seek first his kingdom. Christ points us to His righteousness to lean on as we enter into that kingdom. He gives us a direction in which the goalposts are not constantly moving, but something that is secure. Isaiah 40, verses 30 to 31, Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is a goal Christ teaches you to pursue that does have a finish line. One which isn't an unending, exhausting pursuit. But one that is fed by the work of the Spirit. One that lifts up the runner, and one that finds its end 
and its ultimate satisfaction in Christ, one in which our hope is renewed. So the question that's laid before us is, what will we run after? When our faith feels weak and our future seems uncertain, it's not a dead end and it's not hopeless. There's good news. Because of Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ, God is still there. And to the directionless and to the hopeless, Jesus gives us direction. This brings us to our final point. Christ makes promises to his disciples. Earlier as we were looking at this, we read the first part of chapter 5 of the Cans of Dort, Article 11. Chapter 5, Article 11. And in connection with our passage, I would now like to read the rest of this article as well. We read there, Scripture, meanwhile, testifies that believers in this life have to struggle with various doubts of the flesh and placed under severe temptation do not always feel this full assurance of faith and certainty of perseverance. But God, the Father of all comfort, will not let them be tempted beyond their strength, but with temptation will also provide the way of escape. And by the Holy Spirit will again revive in them the certainty of perseverance. With temptation to stray because of an uncertain future, the Holy Spirit guides us in our walk. He teaches us and He gives us the strength to continue in faithfulness because He will neither allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle nor leave us without a way of escape. He is teaching us that when we feel there's no way forward and the shadows grow, then a light shines in the darkness. In the midst of the darkness and in the midst of uncertainty, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. It is this hope and comfort that Jesus Christ now draws our attention to with those last words. They're words of promise. Remember that. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you, for your heavenly Father knows you need these things. As you seek first the kingdom of God, and as you lean on the word of God to direct you in seeking the kingdom of God, as you come together with brothers and sisters in the congregation and you help each other along the way, as you seek the kingdom of God, you can remember these words of promise. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. These words are intimate. When you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, Christ is promising the personal presence of God in your care, in a special kind of relationship. He is your Father. 
This is a relationship here that is found, not found with anyone else. You only have one father. No one else in the world shares this relationship with you on a human level. Earthly fatherhood, in this way, has the privilege of reflecting a heavenly reality. Nobody else shares this relationship outside of the family. But even earthly fatherhood only holds a faint candle to the closeness and the love that the father has for his children. If it's in their power, which earthly father would withhold something that his child needs? How much more is this not true for your heavenly father? He will give you what you need because he loves you and he is your father. These words are tender. Jesus Christ is promising not just that he is your father, but that he is your father. He'll care for you in ways that he would do for no other child because they are not his child. He is your father. Christ is promising this same personal love and care that's shown to him by his heavenly father is also for you. These words speak of awareness. Christ promises that your heavenly Father knows. He doesn't just have a heart for you, loving you from a distance. He knows what your situation is. Right down to the things that you need that nobody else even knows. Perhaps not even you yourself yet. It's simply accepted by Jesus that your heavenly Father has a heart that is intimately connected to his children, tender towards them, and is aware of what they need. With this heart, he also does speak to your needs. Not just what you need to succeed. Not necessarily what you need to succeed in keeping that friend in school or in getting that job or in moving towards a romantic relationship with someone or even beyond that. But he gives you what you need, what is lacking in carrying out your aim for your highest goal. What you lack for today in your pursuit of the kingdom of God. He will work to supply your needs as you seek first the kingdom of God, to continue to grow you in that goal and guide you. He works even through those relationships and that uncertain future, and he also works if you need to set these things aside. And that is what we see in the last part of our passage as Christ shares these final words. He says this, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now there's one way to read this in which it's just showing Jesus as being very practical. And one commentator suggests this problem. Worry over tomorrow's problems is nonsensical because today has enough to occupy our attention and because tomorrow's feared misfortunes may never happen. And perhaps there's a measure of that, but there's also much more to it than just that. 
God is your Father. Christ is essentially expanding the prayer to trust your Father for your daily bread here, which is to say your needs for today. As your Father, He knows what you need in this very moment. But He doesn't give you grace for what happens tomorrow. He knows what you need. And so He gives you the grace necessary to handle today. When tomorrow comes, He will give you the grace necessary to handle tomorrow. But for now, leave tomorrow in His hands. Today, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Walk by faith. Walk with the faith of a little child with his hand in the hand of his father. He doesn't know what the road ahead looks like, but he knows his father. He knows his father has his hand. His hand is weak, yes, but he knows his father's hand is strong. While his hand might slip, while his hand might let go, his father's hand will not. And he knows that if the road gets rough ahead and he trips, his father's hand will not let go. His father will pick him up. He will not weary or grow faint. His power is measureless. His wisdom is unsearchable and great his faithfulness. The weak and weary he revives when unto him they cry. And those who have no might he will with growing strength supply. They shall mount up with eagle's wings. Unwearied they shall run. They'll neither falter nor grow faint as they in faith walk on. Amen.